Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. Well, today I think it might be time to pull back the curtain a bit and expose some of our opaque types for our listeners. Oh, no. No, we want to keep those things hidden. <laughs> but they need to know how we got here. They need to know our supervillain backstories, Jeroen, and why we care so much about Elm. All right. I, I, should we not say, like, supervillains that stay opaque? Like That's our superpower. Yeah, but like if you discover the, the the villain, then he's not a villain anymore. He's just a troubled person with problems that he's tr- he's trying to solve. Then we'll just be Batman. Okay, you, you be Batman, and uh, I'll be uh, sure. I'll be Robin. <laughs> you could be Superman. We'll just reveal your kryptonite. All right, that, that's fair. So I I think it's fair to say, Yurun. We we do care a lot about Elm. That might even be an understatement. Slight understatement. Probably, yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> I think we've we've both invested a lot into Elm, and mm-hmm. really, like, I feel a sense of like wanting to invest in this community because I I think at the core of it, there's something I really believe in, and I want to like fulfill this vision of this thing that. I think is really important. So I thought it'd be cool to like get at that. What is that thing that's so important to us? And uh, like, how did we get here? What made us care about this so much? Yeah, absolutely. So Dylan, why do you care? Well, what is your origin story? (laughs) My origin. So I, my first job out of college was doing Ruby on Rails development. And throughout college, I was, you know, we, we learned my first college class was in python really okay and that was that was quite a nice experience learning in python it felt very high level and it was great for being introduced to some like basic computing ideas then we started doing java and cnc++ for the rest of my college courses and you know i have mixed feelings about java it's it's quite powerful but uh and the editor tooling is incredible but when I discovered Ruby for this first programming job and Ruby on Rails, I, I I did start to fall in love with the approach of like doing things in a way that felt like it, it did away with the formalities a little bit. And it said, let's model domain concepts. Let's come up with APIs that are DSLs, domain specific languages. Let's really think about the domain. Let's think about the domain terms. Let's speak in domain terms, not in lingo that's talking about an abstract factory instance and you know like java does start to feel like you're bending over backwards to do things that aren't related to your domain so i liked that about ruby i felt like okay i'm i'm really spending a lot of time thinking about my domain so that resonated then working with ruby on rails now i liked i think i liked ruby more than i liked ruby on rails I know there's a lot to love about Ruby on Rails, but I found it extremely confusing to navigate because of all of the magic and all of the implicitness. And the mocking. The mocking, Jeroen. <laughs> don't you, don't get you, him started on mocking. Don't. Have you, have you worked with like code bases that do a lot of um, mocking in their test suites? Uh, I think so, yeah. It's been, it's been a while, but it, yeah, I think so. Well, I know so, Jeroen. I know that I've done it because I remember it because I really did not like it. Like, I don't know. I still feel the blood on my hands. I do. (laughs) I I think, I don't know, maybe maybe that is a part of my, uh, maybe that's my uh, radioactive spider that bit me or something. I don't know. But I really don't like mocking in, uh, in tests because it just feels like, there's something so horribly wrong. If this is what we're doing, then we need to throw everything away and rethink it. What is that? You've been bitten by mocking, right? So now you, you gain the ability to mock mocking. Exactly. And now we just make fun of it all the time. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I Super, do. Superpower. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mock I, man. <laughs> I would like to, I'd like to make a mockery out of mocking. And um, gosh, because it just feels like you're, you don't, you don't know anymore what, what you're testing, you know, because 
any, you can't trust anything that you're looking at. So that was, that was my experience with Ruby on Rails. I'm looking at some code and I'm like, okay, what, what things are happening to get here? Like what global variables are there? What, what code is mixed into this module? So like, this is like a class that I'm defining, but does something monkey patch it later? Or is there a module that gets mixed into it later that changes the behavior or overrides something? Is it calling some methods that depend on implicit context and depend on some some state that it's changing? Does it pass in an argument somewhere and that gets mutated somewhere? And that, that's like a very real thing that happened when I was debugging things and trying to figure out what went wrong. And so like, and then you go to fix it. And I, and I loved like writing tests to wrap my head around what was working. And when I was writing unit tests, I'm like, oh yes, this like, this makes sense. I can like understand what this is doing. And then you start doing controller level tests, integration tests, and everything is mocked. And you're like, wait a minute. Now, like now there's all this magic in the code itself. And now I've added this, like, I don't know what I'm actually testing. I don't know what's real and what's fake in the test. So I was very disillusioned by that, but I didn't, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know I was disillusioned at the time because that I'm like, well, I guess like this is programming. This is like, this is what you do. And I, I didn't know there were alternatives to that. This is my life now for the next 40 <laughs> years or however long. Exactly. So I had had a little bit of a seed planted because when I was doing Ruby on Rails, I discovered the enumerable mix-in, which is something you can use on data structures that are enumerable, like arrays, to, to filter them and map them and uh, inject fold L sort of thing. Wait, was inject fold L? I can't even, I honestly can't even remember now. Sounds like a weird name to, for fold, but... I think it might have been. And then there was compact. Compact was very cool. Compact is something I do all the time now in Elm. Uh, filter map identity. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Removing all the nils in the case of Ruby from a, from a list. But, uh, but I fell in love with working in that way. And I started to really, you know, instead of using the shovel operator to imperatively add things into an array as you iterate over it, it's, it's a way to push things into a list. That's another thing about Ruby and Ruby on Rails. There's more than one way to do it, you know? My mind is a little bit stuck on the shovel operator. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to imagine what it would look like. It's a double carrot. <laughs> I think it's two less than signs. Okay. Oh, so function composition in Elm. They call that but they shovel call it a shovel. They call it a shovel because you're shoveling things into a, an array, I guess. Okay. So it's more about the use than what it looks like. Okay. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. But these are things that you, you need to know. And, and so much time was spent in code reviews just talking about, you know, nitpicks of like, oh, you know, I really don't like the shovel operator. I prefer to do it this way. I prefer to do it, you know, with a list.map or I prefer to do it with a for loop or I prefer to do it with an each loop because those are all things you can do. I prefer to use unless. I prefer to use if. It's like, geez, let's just like have one way to do things that works nicely, you know, but... Let's configure this linter to, to, to make all those choices for us. Oh, but right. which, which linter should we use? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I prefer this linter. This was in the days before like auto formatters were in vogue also. So, um, you know, that was a whole nother thing, but yeah, it, it felt like there was so much churn just figuring out how to express something. And at the same time, like, like I wanted to just think about how do I model these domain concepts and how do I understand what the heck is actually happening here? <laughs> like, how do I get a test around it to understand exactly what inputs lead to what outputs and what scenarios are interesting? How do I model the domain interestingly? And how do I avoid like magic stuff? And so like enumerable started to feel like, okay, I like this way, but I felt a little bit out of place because it didn't feel like everybody was on the same page as me with like 
some people could kind of get behind it, but it wasn't a widely held opinion that that was a cleaner way to do things. So I guess the thing after my Ruby on Rails days uh, was I I got into coaching, uh, agile and technical coaching. And uh, that influenced me a lot in terms of the power of small steps, the power of being very deliberate. And and I was coaching teams. I was coaching a team using AngularJS. And there were so many, so, so many challenges working with that code base, you know, making it testable. And, you know, bugs would pop up. And Angular just, um, you know, this is Angular 1, AngularJS. And it was, again, there were, there were a lot of ways you could do things. There were a lot of foot guns. There was, you know, you could, you could mutate the DOM. You're definitely not supposed to. There are like big warning signs that say, warning, don't use this, but it's here. And you find some random Stack Overflow post and you don't know what's broken. There's some subtle, like leaky abstraction that you need to fix and you don't know what's going wrong to fix it. And so a Stack Overflow post tells you to mutate the DOM and you do it. And not to mention, it just felt like very difficult to to even just like you know i i want to have this angular dependency that i can use in this context how do i even get it in there and how do i know that it's working correctly you know it, it like automatically injects values based on the variable name and you're like is this even working and if it breaks how do i know and and at the same time like i'm coaching this team on these technical practices and we're helping them do legacy code refactoring, do continuous delivery, getting push button deploys and doing trunk based development on it, all these things. And uh, it had real results. Like we were, we were shipping faster and more confidently, but there was so much work to get there. And I realized like the, the language choice plays a big role in your ability to do these practices. And when I discovered Elm, it was a breath of fresh air because suddenly all these things I was trying to coach, like let's avoid having our tests blow up on the first of the month because it depends on the specific date they're run. Let's make them deterministic. Let, like these are practices I was coaching teams on that like I saw results in the code bases becoming more robust and teams spending less time churning on these fires and and more time focusing on the domain and shipping things faster but with elm i'm like wow like dependency injection is just the only way to do things because you can't depend on impure things and testing is very straightforward and you have this fast feedback loop from the compiler telling you exactly what went wrong and even back then but because i think you used elm in that was in the 18 days okay yeah when the compiler was still slow, right? Well, when I say fast feedback, I mean, everything was kind of slow back then. So I wasn't really like noticing oh, okay. a <laughs> speed difference between other things. Also, this wasn't Fair. like a, you know, several hundred thousand line code base. But um, but when I say fast feedback loop, I mean, just more like compared to scratching your head at why isn't this Angular thing working and it not telling you and you literally spending a whole day trying to figure it out. And you're like, oh, of course it was here. Some dumb little thing, but it doesn't tell you. So it really felt like a breath of fresh air. And it really felt like it addressed these things in my experience with Ruby that didn't sit right with me, where mocking, it's like, well, you can't mock. But more importantly, like you express the code in a way where you wouldn't need to mock because it's not coupled to all of these side effects and external systems, you you inject that in. So you you just test the behavior. You write something that isn't coupled to that, right? So all of these like very subtle decoupling things that I was trying really hard to like coach teams on and teach them how to practice. It's like, well, in Elm, you don't really need to teach that. It's just like, I mean, in Elm, you just need to tell people write tests. But if they write tests, then they're going to write them in that way. And they're going to write their code in that way. So th- I think that's I think that's kind of my story. That's why I really believe in Elm. Because all these things like that I felt like I didn't belong. I wasn't in the right place because 
I just wanted one way to do things. And also I just like wanted these practices to be natural. It just made sense to me. Yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. The mock spider, radioactive mocks. <laughs> mock man. <laughs> well, Yurun, what is your super villain backstory? Are you a super villain or are you a superhero? Who knows? <laughs> The listeners can decide. Yeah, please say I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. <laughs> yeah, so where I come from is more from working as a developer. So my career started with CoffeeScript and JavaScript and then more and more JavaScript until I did some Elm. And I was pretty much always getting a little bit frustrated with all the problems that we were hitting, crashes that were happening that felt preventable. I started looking into ways that we can improve things by using the newer, the newest framework uh, out there. Uh, I remember being very excited about AngularJS when I was still like interning. Uh, I was uh, excited by React when it was released, uh, which is at a company where we were using AngularJS. And later on, I became excited by Elm for the same reason as well. Uh, I started playing with Uh, functional programming using Lodash, a specific version of Lodash, which is called Lodash slash FP, or Lodash FP, uh, which is all those, um, not standard, but like all those extra functions like we have in Basics Extra and Dix Extra that are done in FP style. So nothing is mutated. You always get a copy of things uh, and the order of Of, um, of arguments is data last instead of data first. So that, that was quite different from regular Lodash, but I, I really enjoyed using that. That made things feel more easier to understand. And the Lodash, the FP stuff is using like curried JS style. So you were already into partial application and down that rabbit hole at that yeah, point. Yeah, in, in a way, yeah. Um, so Maybe I didn't use it all that much, I feel, in retrospect, but it did make my learning of Elm much easier. Like I, I wasn't, I didn't have as much trouble with learning Elm as plenty of others have done, probably because of that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's just like, well, it's the same thing as Lodash, except you have less surprises. And yeah, and it worked well, so that felt very nice. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, I was playing with ESLint, writing a lot of ESLint rules. I wrote like 75 over the course of a year because there were just so many problems that you could have in, in our code base and in JavaScript. So I, I wrote plenty for packages that were published, a few under my name, a few under other people's names, uh, and a few for th that were custom to our code base at work. And I mean, 75 rules are a lot of rules. Uh, I don't think I've written that many for Elm Review in the four years that I've been working on it or however long that was. So yeah, at some point I discovered Elm and I'm like, well, j just f first to, do, to play with Elm, like I needed to, to try it out. And Elm is a front-end language to do web applications but I had no real experience with um, making front-end applications. What I did have experience with, however, was writing linter rules. So I decided, well, you know what, let's try to make a linter, even a basic one. And um, I really liked the experience because, mostly because of custom types, like just the fact that you can pattern match on AST nodes and you know exactly what they contain and, what, and all the AST nodes that you you can encounter, that felt like a breath of fresh air because in ES, when I was running ESLint rules, oftentimes I didn't know which AST nodes I would hit, which one I would encounter. And then like there were some properties uh, that I thought were, were, would always be there that turned out to be optional. And when I relied on them not being optional, that crashed the whole ESLint application. And that, that didn't feel nice. So. So when I was playing with uh, Ryan and Linter in, in Elm, I was like, well, the experience is much nicer. And I say that even while writing my, the Linter from scratch. So that was a lot more work. Right. And that was your first Elm project, right? That was my first Elm project. And at that's, that's some point that became Elm Review. Like, and that was at the beginning of 2017 or... Yeah. So th that's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, wow. 
Yeah, so, so when, uh, then I didn't use Elm for a few years. I uh, started doing it professionally at a, at a company and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but the, there was like one thing that was lacking that's like, oh, well, the, there's plenty of problems in my code base that we can just fix by telling people, hey, look at the code you wrote. This is not how we should do things. And I'm like, well, we, if we only we had a linter that could write custom linter rules, well, you know, you know the, the rest of the story. So yeah, my experience with Elm was like, there's a lot of lot less things that you need to check with static analysis because the compiler is already doing that and the design of the language is already doing that. I actually made a, a blog post on Elmcraft or an article on Elmcraft describing all the rules for ESLint, for the core rules that don't make sense in Elm, like where that you don't need or which ones do you still need? And like 86% or something like that uh, were not needed or, and therefore they're, they're not in Elm review either. And that's just like a staggering number. So yeah, th th these are the kinds of things that I really enjoyed with Elm. And I, over the course of my Elm career or mostly working as a tooling developer, I've just come to appreciate how much potential Elm has. And it's a bit of a weird potential that you have because like you can say, oh, well, JavaScript has plenty of potential. You can do plenty of amazing things. And that's true. Rust has a plenty of potential, etc. All those languages have them. But Elm's case is a bit particular because like, for instance, for JavaScript, you're like, oh, JavaScript is amazing. And once we have async await or whatever new feature that was decided by a committee, it's going to be much more awesome. Things are going to be much easier and going to be able to create very cool products with it or very cool tooling. And the Elm way, the, the way that Elm has potential is not that way. It's not like, oh, we're, we're waiting on features that a committee has decided or that Evan has decided. It's more like, well, we see a lot of innovation because people push what they can do with the Elm. And I'm just always amazed by what people do. And it's usually just relying on the design of, language, uh, of the language, which is like pure functions everywhere, immutable values everywhere. And just from those tiny facts, you can do so much. Like Elm Review, great tool, but it's great because it has a language that uh, is very analyzable. And if a function, if a value doesn't appear anywhere, then you can just remove it easy as that. Lambda, for instance, has like, well, we are just relying, we're just writing Elm code. And because Elm code uh, is just plain data, we can just send them over the, over the wire from the front end to the back end and back end to the front end, maybe with some additional limitations, but you can basically just write Elm and you have now a amazing experience writing front-end and back-end languages with hosting and backups and, and all that. And it's only because we're pushing on the things that Elm gives us, not because we're expecting new features to arrive to the language. And that's something that I haven't found anywhere else. So that's one of the reasons why I really care about Elm is that I just see so much potential. And it's not even like because I see it, like I, I can think of it, it's like, I know that people will make more things because they just keep happening. <laughs> yeah, right. That resonates with me a lot too. Like, because, yeah, as you say, it's not just like what got you in the door, but then what, what makes you see the long-term vision that you want to be a part of. And um, I think we both are really invested in that. And, and it is, like you say, because, I mean, you know, Elm Tailwind modules and Lambda and, you know, Elm UI and all these like innovative approaches. I mean, Elm format, it's just like, it, it feels like there's also an ethos in the community of being willing to think things up from first principles. That's mm -hmm. really cool. But thinking things up from first principles while also being very pragmatic and user focused. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, Elm's design has a lot of things going for it, where we're able to mix a very simple language with very strong guarantees to get a lot of things out of it. 
So we have a, a simple language that is easy to teach. Like people will always tell you, oh, the, there's a learning curve because it's different. But in, in practice, like Elm is still a very simple language, especially for a functional one. It's teachable. It's analyzable for Elm review, for people reviewing the code. It's pretty fast. It's super maintainable because of pure functional lang- uh, features and immutable. And all of that, it goes well together. And you add to that, like all the things that you can get out of that. And it's just, the result is just amazing, in my opinion. And th- that's why I, I, I stay here, because I, as I see some potential. I don't know what people will come up with. Like, I'm very excited to see things. I, I see other languages, like, for instance, uh, Rust is an amazing choice for plenty of projects at the moment. And it's trying to improve the st- status quo compared to other languages or frameworks that are in the same space. So mostly about memory and performance is trying to be really good at that. And other languages do the same thing, like F-sharp is an improvement over C-sharp because of of, improvements. It's it's a different approach. And you've got other languages like Rescript or Reason. I I still don't remember the name. Uh, Grain, Gleam, like they, they all try to improve the status quo, improve things compared to JavaScript, compared to other languages, but they never go as deep as Elm goes. Like it's just, it's always like, well, F-sharp is, uh, if you're a functional, uh, it's a functional language, we're not going to go deep into purity. Um, Gleam is like, well, we're going to be pretty much just like Elm. But we're, we have uh, FFI with Erlang things. And, y- and you lose some of the guarantees that Elm has or th- the Elm approach has. And I'm like, well, it's a shame because you lose so much by doing that. Yes. The, d- the difference between a, a, I mean, a 99% guarantee isn't a guarantee, right? And uh, it, it just, it feels different. And, it, it, you know, not to say that it's not a valid approach with benefits to say, I want to make the set of trade-offs where I can do FFI with these other languages, or, you know, I, I want to just write in JavaScript, or I want to use Rescript and be able to directly call JavaScript and, and wrap things with their FFI wrappers. That's, that's great. Like, that's a totally valid set of trade-offs. It's just a very different set of things that fall out of that compared to Elm. And I think you and I really find it a compelling vision when you say, let's make that drastic choice. And, you know, as you're saying, like, I think the thing about Elm, it's not, it's not about what Elm adds. It's about what Elm has removed. And it's removed these things that you, that give you guarantees. So now you can say, well, this is all I have. I have custom types and and pure functions and immutable values. And um, that's if that's all there is, then I can make so many assumptions and I can have so many guarantees and I can build such interesting tools to use that. I don't even know if I was like a tooling person before I got into Elm. Like I feel like Elm really changed that about me where it, I mean, in my coaching days, I really saw the power of good tools. And I realized that if you're really good at editor tools, it's not, it's not a fun toy. It is like a very powerful tool that transforms you as a developer. I think like, I think if you're able to navigate around refactoring tools and work, I I find that so powerful, like working with guaranteed refactorings, which like if you're working with Java or Kotlin, it's like really powerful what you can do just working with like refactoring operations that you can trust. But um, the potential there in Elm is even greater because there are way fewer sharp, sharp edges that yeah. you can encounter. Well, as you say, Elm has removed a lot of features. In, in a way, it has removed pretty much all the foot guns. It also has removed a lot of escape hatches because in some of the escape hatches, you have a gun. We are in... Uh... In the basement of America, I don't know. Um, <laughs> plenty of guns everywhere. And as you say, like there are trade-offs to doing things in one language or another. And 
making one tool uh, in JavaScript is might be much easier than writing in Elm or a similar language with those same uh, limitations. But you don't get the same things uh, in return. So in Elm, like I'm almost amazed that I forgot to say that, but like there are no errors, there are no crashes. Like, yeah, that, that's the kind of the main, main things. So for instance, if you write things in Lambda or in, in Elm pages, your code will not crash. It will not have any errors. You could probably have a framework like uh, like Lambda or Elm Pages for JavaScript or other languages like that, but you're not gonna be able to prevent it from crashing, or maybe it's possible, but you're gonna have to do so much work on making that work. So you're gonna have to add additional limitations to your language, like so. For instance, say like, well, you can use it's just JavaScript. But don't use eval. Don't use uh, subclassing. Don't use I don't know whatever feature doesn't work in 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 this imaginary situation. Or you're gonna just do a lot more analysis work, uh, like oh please uh, add all these ESLint plugins to to make things to make sure you're not falling into one of these traps or using these foot guns or all these things that you need to to worry about. Like in Elm, it's just much simpler. That's the default approach. And then tooling authors, package authors in Elm have just this ethos of trying to make things type safe, which just improves the situation for Elm even more. Sometimes at the cost of a little bit more verbose API or uh, things that are not as nice to use because you need to handle all possible cases. But in practice, like the result is really, really good. And you're just gonna have a hard time having the same results in another language, when at least when Elm is a good fit for your project. Like, not saying Elm is always a good fit, like we're, but yeah. And obviously, there there is a trade-off with convenience. You know, just being able to grab an off-the-shelf npm package, or you know, React hook, or component library, whatever it may be. You know, there's a trade-off and. This is a choice that we all make when we're using Elm. And I mean, in a way, like, I feel like you and I really want to do everything we can to, to make the ecosystem as compelling as we can to narrow the gap of those trade-offs. Because like inherently, yes, there is a certain, like, there's, people want convenience. And Elm takes away convenience in a fundamental way that gives you something back that's very valuable. It gives you back the ability to reason about your code in a totally different way and the ability to have guarantees and trust your code in a very different way. But it takes away convenience. And that that's just a fundamental truth about the core trade-offs that Elm makes. And some people are just not going to like that. Some people are not going to want to be constrained in that way. They're going to say, hey, you know what? Like, I'm an adult. I want to be able to have a global variable, if that's how I want to solve my problem, I want to be able to bypass the compiler checks and just use a type and not have to write a decoder for it and things like that. And that's, that's a reasonable preference, but it's just a very different world. And, but, you know, I mean, I think that working with, with Tailwind in, in Elm is super compelling. And like, that's, you know, as we fill out the ecosystem with more of these things, we get closer to that that vision, which it's not going to be, I, I don't think it's ever going to be as big as JavaScript, right? That's like, it's just, I think inherently, like you take away people's convenience and fewer people will be attracted to that world. Yeah. But, but in some cases, like people are going to adopt it and they'll be fine with it. Like uh, all the functional tools that we have in Elm, like map and filter and reduce and whatever well we can see those in uh, popping up in all other languages anonymous yeah. functions as well right so people are getting used to some of the features and it, i i would kind of say like elms some of elms features are like seed belts people hated them when they had to <laughs> uh, yeah. start using them i'm guessing i was still too young back then yeah oh yeah <laughs> but now everyone has them and i don't think a lot of people will just say, well, this is for nothing. 
like this is useless no people know it's going to be helpful some people will still decide to take them off or not to put them on and well it's going to be very scary for them should anything happen you lose some guarantees yeah and yeah sometimes the 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 trade-offs are very much in favor of one design or uh, compared to another seat belts it's not a lot of a lot of constraints but it adds a lot of guarantee about like helping you survive a crash so it's 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 definitely worth the effort and not worth encountering the risk and i'd say in elm like there's just so many things that handling all cases handling that something is null or nothing it's worth it it's not it's always very, practical but yeah it's a very compelling story i mean it is interesting like i think typescript has shown that like i think that 99% guarantees are in a lot of people's minds fine right and and that's okay but a lot of people calling json.parse and it returning in any type it's like yeah that's fine you know or or maybe they're like well i'll use zod or iots uh and do a decoder style thing and be really careful about not introducing any types but some people are like a, a lot of people see typescript more as a developer tool and a productivity tool and an auto completion tool rather than something that prevents crashes in their system and something i mean you know prevents some but doesn't prevent all and people people aren't expecting it to and they're okay with that but yeah when we can have an ecosystem built around this it just opens up these interesting possibilities which we haven't really even scratched the surface of with editor tooling refactoring tools you know i mean elm review has like filled a lot of this gap but elm review still has so much more that it could do i'm sure right so like we're really just scratching the surface of what we can do with this not to mention that you know as you talked about like the the thoughtfulness of the api design that we see is really humbling and i mean i love being a part of this community for that reason like it's just uh like people really put a lot of care into the domain and they really think through like they put so much care into that user's experience like what um what is it going to be like using this package and what what things could go wrong and what things can i make so the user doesn't have to ever think about going wrong because I can prevent it entirely and what things can I model that can go wrong because I can't avoid it but I can make it explicit and nice to work with and make those choices so and and as we talked about in our documentation episode the the elm package docs are a big part of that and uh I mean navigating documentation back when I was doing ruby on rails development and javascript development you know, it was sometimes tough, like finding what you were looking for and like, what, what can I, what can I call? Because there's meta programming and things are, you know, accept different types of values, uh, you know, accept an object or null or undefined and have different behavior based on what you pass in. So it's very, very pleasant to work with Elm APIs and very easy to navigate. And it's just so, yeah, like I think, and in general, like, I think I really, at, at my core, believe in this idea of working with pure functions as, as the basis of what we're writing and building out all of these things around them. Again, like the mocks, right? Like, mm. if you're... Mock man. It, it just, <laughs> uh, it, like, it solves that problem by inverting things. If you can't do non-deterministic things if you can't mutate state and perform side effects and do non-deterministic outputs from from within your code you can only do it from outside of your code you can only pass it in from outside of your code as a dependency you have inverted that as a language feature which is amazing and i i can't understate the value of that to me having that as not a guideline and a principle and a best practice but as a part of the language is very powerful and so i i just deeply believe in that i also believe in that um not just 
for my beliefs about like best practices for coding, um, you know, taking small steps and making things testable and all these sorts of things. But also for frameworks, like I believe that it's a very good way to target things as a framework author to to just neatly define like here's the interface for this thing. And I, as the framework, am going to be the interface between you and the outside world. But I'm going to clearly define the contract. Here's your contract of what you can ask me to do. And I'll go do the dirty stuff in the outside world that performs side effects and does impure things. So building Elm pages, that's been um, something I've really started to believe more deeply as well, is that Elm is actually a very powerful tool for, for, as a target for framework authors. And, um, and I, uh, well, actually the, the day that we're recording this, uh, is the day after I released Elm Pages V3. And, uh, and I hope that there will be more, um, big framework releases like this to come in the Elm ecosystem, because I think it's a very promising part of the Elm language. And I hope it for the maintainer because it's been a lot of work. <laughs> it has. Yeah. It has. Very true. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we could do with maybe a suite of tools to to empower framework authors. I'm not sure if that would be at the compiler level or a set of meta tools, but whatever it is, yeah, we could definitely uh, empower. And in general, I think I mean I think that's what I most wish for the Elm ecosystem is that we could empower uh, authors of tools to do more, like having more access to type information and, and things like that. Like if, if we have that, I feel like so many, so many powerful tools would come out of that. Yeah. See, you're not even asking for new features in the language. Right. Exactly. You just want the things that we have to be even easier to access to make even better tools or better frameworks or better packages. Yes. Exactly. Because there's so much rich information that the compiler has. And when you cup, you know, when you pair that together with the guarantees that the language gives you, the tooling possibilities are, are endless. But if we had a, an easier way to, to make use of those and didn't have to reinvent the wheel every time as tooling authors, I think it would enable a lot of innovation. And that's like, I think that's really what Elm needs to blossom. Like you said, it's not, it's not so much new, like there aren't that many language features that Elm really needs. Maybe a handful of, of small improvements, but nothing, nothing massive. There's like, that's not the main thing it needs. I do feel like we're both on the, of the opinion, like what Elm is missing is more tools. At least that was what we said. And I'm sure that if we, if other people talked about uh, the, the same topic in, in Elm, like more regular users of Elm, just people who write Elm to, to do their day job, then they would have a very different reply to this or different opinion of this. Uh, at least I don't think they would focus on tooling as much. Yeah. But yeah, in, in practice, I think most people, they want better tools. And for people in the JavaScript world, for instance, that often comes that often comes from new language features or new framework or new build tools or whatever. So yeah, also tooling, but also sometimes new language features. Yeah, I mean we we would definitely benefit a lot from a larger ecosystem. You know, I mean it would be great to if you want to use a particular you know view view library. It would be great if there were some no-brainer choices for doing material UI or ant design or whatever it is in Elm. That would definitely be a huge boon for, for the Elm community, I think. Another reason why I care about Elm is just I find it fun. It's like just working on, no, not even working on Elm things, it's like working with Elm. I'm, for instance, super happy that I've built Elm Review uh, in Elm, at least mostly in Elm. The M parts are the the more the most fun ones, and just the, the yeah the the sheer simplicity of refactoring and adding new features and making sure you don't have to and not having to think about all the edge cases because the compiler will remind you about those. 
it just feels so nice. It's just very enjoyable, very relaxing compared to when I work on Elm Review, but on the CLI part, which is in part written in JavaScript. Nowadays, slightly bit TypeScript or JavaScript with JS doc. And it's not a fun. Yeah, I feel the same way. And, and uh, I definitely make the sacrifice of writing JavaScript and TypeScript to build these meta frameworks to make it nicer to work in the Elm ecosystem. But then once I can move away from that and just <laughs> say, okay, I built all this infrastructure. Now let me sit down and write an Elm Pages script, you know, or let me write a route module in my Elm Pages app. Like, yeah, I feel so happy just having that explicitness and the Elm compiler to help me. And again, like not having to wonder, does this throw an exception? Does does this change some state somewhere, you know, or should this use the shovel operator or a map or a for loop or an each loop, you know, or it just see like there, it really does feel like there's, there's almost one way to express a, a lot of Elm code. Of course, it's not literally one way, but it, it, it feels like you write Elm and it, you don't have to think about all these details. You think about what is the problem I'm solving and, and you can refactor your code. It's, it's fun to refactor your code. It's not scary and like, well, here we go. Probably going to break a bunch of stuff. And if you, if you write tests with Elm, it's even easier to, to refactor your Elm code. And it's very easy to write tests in Elm. It's so nice to write tests in Elm and the kinds of, tools that we see, like Martin Stewart wrote Lambda program test, which I'm absolutely amazed by just emulating. So similar to Elm program test, where you have something that, that emulates a browser, le letting you click on something in an Elm view and navigate around an Elm application and make assertions about what the view shows. Lambda program test builds upon that, but it lets you simulate multiple connected clients interacting with an actual Lambda backend and actually executing that backend code. And it's not mocking it. It's running the same code that's going to run in your backend in production and the same code that's going to run on your front end in production. And you can trust it. And there is the browser emulation piece, but that's a pretty thin layer, you know, clicking on things and triggering on click events. So besides that, you know that it's going to behave the exact same way, but it's as fast as a unit test because it's not spinning up a headless browser. And in the case of Lambda program test, it's emulating multiple connected clients to like a real-time backend framework. And you can actually view it stepping through it. It's just unreal. And the and this was something that Martin Stewart was like hacking on something. He's like, oh yeah, it'd be nice if I could like write a test for multiple connected clients to make sure I've got these race conditions ironed out and it'd be nice if I could visualize the state of it. And he just kind of hacks it together and he's like, oh yeah, it actually works out perfectly and it's really easy and elegant. And that's how it is. Like, I feel like that's something inherent in Elm that things don't end up, you pull on the thread and it gets messier and messier and you, and it, works really nicely until you start pulling on that thread and then it falls apart. In Elm, I feel like you start pulling on that thread and it, it comes together even more cleanly because it's, there's an elegance and a simplicity to Elm itself. Yeah. Uh, it, it requires some work to, to, to remove yes. all the, the hairy parts, but yeah, absolutely. It, it requires a lot of work, uh, but you like the potential is there to build amazing tools that like don't have these caveats and these messy edges if you're willing to put in that work as a tooling author yeah i'm thinking of cypress for instance where cypress is a testing framework where you can emulate your browser and it actually runs the browser and it's super powerful but oh everywhere in its docs it says things like don't do this or don't do things this way or and whenever you go to another test then we just start from scratch. It's just like kind of the same experience that you just said. Like you, you pull on a thread and the result is nice, but at some point things get hairy. And in the case of Cypress, because it's JavaScript, it's 
playing with a browser which is complicated in practice, well, they don't put out something nice. They just say, okay, well, not start from here. You should not do this. You should not yes, do that. Exactly. And the result is not as nice and you don't get the same results. Like it's slower, well, for good reasons, potentially. But it, it can crash. It can crash in weird ways. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I might be a little bit biased, but <laughs> you, you get yeah. what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that's what we get for the, the price of Elm, the price of writing pure functions, which is um, a limitation that we take on. And that's what, that's what we get from that, right? So really interesting things emerge from that. But that's, that's why tooling is so important in Elm, because we paid that price. So give us our money's worth by giving us amazing <laughs> tools and dedicating your life to building really cool tools, tooling authors. <laughs> so that's I why we do dedi- it. I will dedicate my life to <laughs> make these awesome tools that rely on the purity <laughs> and functional. Oh, okay, yep. so that's not my villain story. That's my priesthood story or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a curse. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, here we are. Yeah, I, I, you, you talked earlier about like people who do TypeScript and they're like happy with the the new guarantees that they gain from TypeScript compared to JavaScript. And I mean, it, it was a lot of work to convince those people to use TypeScript for good reason, because it adds a lot of complexity still and a lot of build steps and, and all that. Um, and some people got convinced and some people are now very, very happy with it. And TypeScript is now pretty much the, the standard even compared to JavaScript, at least in the circles that I... But sometimes you just don't know how bad you have it, right? Like the, the, the people who did JavaScript and not TypeScript, they didn't know how good it was to have, to have types. We often say that they've been bitten by Java and they're a pretty lousy type system. And that, that might be true. But yeah, if you, if you go to, to Reason or to Elm or to F-sharp, like the types are really nice. And I, I would say, like, com- from TypeScript compared uh, to Elm, you now have a type checker, which works well. It doesn't use the same technology or the same um, idea behind it. So we, the TypeScript one is not as reliable. But like, something that is still missing is side effect tracking. And I don't think the TypeScript people know how bad they have it that they have to handle all those side effects. Yeah, right. Every time I go to the Netherlands, I'm just always amazed by something that is very simple, and that is traffic lights. Mm. Have you ever been to the Netherlands? No, I'd like to go. Okay, well, the, the, the road infrastructure is very nice because like, you've got bikes everywhere. You, you give it a separated bike lane and a separate pedestrian lane on top of the normal roads. Uh, and the, the, the traffic lights are just amazing. Like, for instance, if you're in a car and you, you go to a crossroad, so you've got traffic lights everywhere stopping people. And if you're the only one who's driving through that, so for instance, if you're driving uh, in the middle of the night, then the traffic light will be red. And when, once you arrive at this traffic light, it will go green. And you can just go now because the traffic light knows there's no one around. And every time I go there, I'm like, ah, this is so amazing. And then I go back to France and I get to a traffic light that is red. And I look everywhere and there's no one in sight. Yeah. No pedestrian, no bike lanes. Oh, well, there, there, yeah, there are no bike lanes and no, no other cars. I'm like, why am I waiting? And I'm just being able to have a green light right away would improve traffic for sure. Because mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. people don't stop for nothing. You don't have a, a large lane of cars just waiting for this this uh, red light. And the people, at least in France, I don't think they know how bad they have it because they haven't <laughs> seen, they haven't been to the Netherlands. Right. Uh, when they have, they, they go there for bad reasons, like French tourists. Right, right. Uh-huh. And yeah, I, I think for TypeScript, it's, it's the same, like, you go to elm you won't have the same type system it will be a much nicer one limiting potentially but much nicer side effects not an issue but you don't know how bad you have it uh, when you have that so 
trade-offs everywhere, but sometimes the results are very, very nice. And and I think it would be nice for people to to try out those things. And by the way, go to the Netherlands. It's, it's a nice place. Yes, I, d- I definitely will. Yeah. Oh, but don't take the plane too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you kind of buy into a way of working and thinking and I, I find it really interesting. It, my, my time is, co- uh, you know, doing my coaching work really influenced me on this as well of how much somebody's mental model of something can influence the way they interpret what's going on. So, you know, for example, like a lot of my coaching work, I, I was trying to get teams, you know, not, not being blocked by things, not being blocked by needing things from other teams, but being empowered to work on things on their own and being able to ship things all within one team and being able to deploy something uh, by, with the push of a button. But if you're, if you're perceiving things as being more efficient by another team working on something, then you're going to interpret the pain points around that in a different light. Whereas if you perceive the pain of fitting pieces together where two different teams built something and now you go to integrate those two pieces and they don't work or these two systems don't understand each other or they have a very heavy-handed contract with each other because it's not people operating within the same context or you know or you're you're going to ship something and you have five months of work that you're going to spend one month testing um, and you you know you're going to perceive that very differently if you have a mental model that says well let's be efficient with our testing we have to manually test this so let's be efficient by batching everything up we don't want to like ship something today and then have to go test the whole app that would be inefficient well if that's your mental model of things then it is going to look inefficient but if you if you have a different mental model, then you, you look at it as, um, you know, the, uh, the more we batch things up, the more that can break at once. And, um, the more we've lost context from the thing that we've worked on to know what we're looking for. And the less we've automated testing things and the less confident we can be about our deploy process and the less we automate our deploy and all these. So, Looking at it through different lenses totally transforms the way that you you see it. I think it's the same with looking at the trade-offs of Elm versus TypeScript. If you're looking at it as, you know, the value of guarantees versus the inconvenience of having to pass through side effects explicitly, not being able to trigger them from anywhere, the hindrance that that causes you, like you're going to perceive it very differently. And I think some people just have a different mental model and a different preference fundamentally. And I think that's fine. But for those who, I mean, my bottom line is if you, if you make a set, a set of trade-offs, then cash in the, the good things from those trade-offs. You've, you've, you've paid the cost of making the sacrifices of the, of the cons of that trade-off. So get all the pros from that trade-off that you can, right? And right. But you need to know yeah, but you need to know which trade-offs you made. If you only know yes. JavaScript, right, what, right. Are the, what are the trade-offs of JavaScript compared to other things? Like, where does right. it shine? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And, and I mean, I, I think, I mean, I've heard a lot of people say that try Elm out, you'll, you'll learn something, even if you end up not using it in your production stack. So I definitely think it's a good learning experience for people to, to try it out, regardless of whether they end up using it. It's interesting because when you say tell people how to write good code, it's usually like stay simple, do write good names, and just use simple functions, right? That in practice, that's what it boils down to. Like keep codes very simple, kiss. Keep it mm-hmm. stupid simple. Simple silly. Simple silly. Okay. <laughs> is keep that is simple that the, stupid? Usually people it, say keep it simple stupid. I yeah. was just being silly. Well, I mean, it's a, maybe a less offensive one. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Not the one that I had heard, at least. I mean, in, in practice, like, if you want to go towards better and simple code, you go towards code that it looks like Elm. And Elm just makes that the default. 
Yes. And also, like, the only thing you can do. So it yeah. might feel like a limitation, but in practice, like, yeah, it's just, it's just good code. Because that's what good code tends to towards. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am convinced personally, my, uh, like, all of the things that I've learned about what makes a code base maintainable are very aligned with Elm and happen very naturally with Elm. Making code traceable, you know, decoupling things, inversion of control, all these types of practices, it's very natural with Elm. Also, like, it's hard to imagine with how core parse don't validate and, and these types of principles, make impossible states impossible, are to, to how I think about writing good code and fixing bugs and keeping them fixed. I don't think I could go back. Like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how I would write code without tools in my tool belt that make it really easy to do that. And when I, when I'm writing TypeScript personally, I honestly don't do that much of things like parse don't validate and make impossible states impossible. It's just cumbersome and I don't really get the full guarantee. So it feels like, why am I bending over backwards to make discriminated unions that like, I can't really trust it, it feels like it's going against the grain of how the whole ecosystem is working that I'm using. Yep. On top of that, it's also like there's this distraction or there's this temptation, uh, this little devil telling you like, oh, hey, this could be much simpler if you just mutate this argument. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, and potentially for good reason, because also like, can be more performance, sure. But there's always this temptation to write code in a not a nice way. That is, I, I just find distracting. And sometimes I get tempted in practice to do that. And that's how my code turns out. And that will, or that might create problems. But you don't have that in Elm. And that feels just nice. Like, it's not an option. Stop thinking about it. Just write the the good code from the, the start. And if it's not great, then you can refactor it. Because refactoring is safe, great, uh, it feels good, little angels, ev angels everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, it just, it really does feel like Elm takes it a step further, you know, like something like Haskell or PureScript. Like I, I've never felt that drawn to to some of these other languages because again there's just like elm really makes this hard choice of like not having escape patches and having pure functions and exhaustive case checks and all these things that are it's just like uh airtight at the core like all of its core decisions are made around being airtight and then having pragmatic apis that are focus like making you know, which maybe somebody who's really big in, into Haskell would say, well, yeah, but you're missing out on the power of a lot of things that type systems can provide to you. And you're missing out on some of the ease that you have from things like type classes and stuff. And there, there are definitely trade-offs there. There are definitely valuable things that come from that. But Elm, it, it goes all in on saying, no escape patches. It's an airtight system that you can completely trace and understand. Pure functions all the way. And let's be pragmatic and talk about things in more domain terms than category theory terms or things like that. And to me, that just really resonates. Like that, that, that's my love language. Just like speaking in domain language and simple, understandable, traceable code that you know exactly what it does and it's pure functions. Like it just works for me at the core. And Elm does that in a way that I think is very unique. And I think I definitely am, am keen to see what Richard Feldman's project Rock uh, does. I think that like he is kind of bringing a similar ethos to a, a different context, a more, you know, more of a sort of the types of things you would do with Rust, backend, more performance-focused projects. But I think he's bringing a similar ethos there that I'm very keen to see what he does with. I think um, I think that will pull at my heartstrings as well. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to to playing with it more as well. And I really hope they don't make any choices that go counter to what yes. we like about Elm. Uh, at least the, the the large parts. From Syntax from everything I've seen fine. so far, it it has. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, we we kind of mentioned like it's about pushing Elm to its limits. But as a tooling author, it's also just simply intellectually fun to see how far you can push it. For instance, I had a lot of fun making pull requests to Elm Optimized Level 2 mm, yeah. to make things even faster. But relying on the fact that it's Elm codes that I'm optimizing. Right, right. Yes. Being able to do isomorphic things with Elm code, because if it, if it can give you the same result and it's... It's pure, so it's so easy to swap it out for something else that does the same thing. Then you can do whatever dirty tricks you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, also like tail recursion module cons that I worked on or that I made blog posts about. It's just like it's still Elm, but now the the compiler can change the the, the resulting source code, the resulting JavaScript, in a way that is more optimized, and that would un- unlock some ways of writing Elm code that are currently like not stack safe or something. That would be amazing. Is that a feature for the language or is it just like optimization? That's a good question. Stack safety is a feature. Yeah, it's it's borderline. It's it's, it's still Elm, but... (laughs) I mean, put it this way. If Elm didn't have tail call optimization, then certain use cases wouldn't be possible. And being able to make a guarantee about that is definitely compelling. So yeah, I think in conclusion, like Elm is just such a nice bundle of features that are put together in a very nice and polished way. Yeah. The, the right. fact that it doesn't crash, the fact that its language is super simple and teachable, not, not compared to Haskell, for instance. The fact that the resulting code is good code and maintainable code. And then you can have tools around it that are just so powerful that just make so much good use of all the guarantees that the language gives you and the compiler gives you. And I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting more things, but it, like it's, it's just such a dense, small, little language that is with so much good in it. It's just super enjoyable. And a community of like inspiring people who believe in that stuff too, which is really cool, you know, and who pull up their sleeves and and try to build cool things with it. So yeah, I really like the ethos of the community, like the, the everyone trying to make good stuff. Yeah, and just the quality of the average Elm package is pretty impressive. Yeah, so that's why we care about Elm. Well, this was a fun trip down memory lane. <laughs> yeah. And uh perhaps uh perhaps you're a superhero trying to build cool static analysis and I'm a super villain trying to destroy all mocking in the universe. <laughs> Mockman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one step closer. <gasps> yeah. Well, Yurun, until next time. Until next time. <laughs>